0: Good morning to you. Perhaps you heard the one about the boss uh, who uh, called his employee into his office. He said, Rob, you've been with the com- company for a little under a year. I believe you started off in the mailroom, And a week later, you were promoted to the sales department. A month after that, you were made sales manager about six months later you were promoted to vice president and now it's time for me to retire and i want you to take over the company what do you say to that Thanks," said the employee thanks the boss replied is that all you have to say i suppose not thanks dad (laughs) for those of us who do not find ourselves in a position of acquisition based on our genetic extraction, we know that the only thing that ever sat its way to success is a hen. Now, we are in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a man who could get things done. He was a man who could move others to accomplish the seemingly impossible. Nehemiah achieved in 52 days what 50,000 Israelites did not achieve in 95 years. And so it leads the reader to wonder, how did he do that? How did he do that? Now, over these past three Sundays, we have been discussing the hows of Nehemiah's amazing kingdom accomplishments. So I'd like for you to turn with me in the Word of God to Nehemiah 2.9. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. Nehemiah 2.9, if you don't have a copy of Scripture with you, you can grab one of ours. In the Blue Pew Bible, it's page 504. 504, Nehemiah 2.9. As we turn in the Word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time in His text today. Lord Jesus, we invite You to speak to us today. We know that Your Spirit has prompted Scripture, that no prophecy came from the will of man, but from the will of God. That every uh, jot and tittle is inspired of You and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work that You have prepared in advance for us to do. And so, Lord, as we look at the subject of being a kingdom accomplisher, as we go back to the Old Testament in texts that may not be very familiar, my suspicion is that Nehemiah 3, full of hard-to-pronounce Hebrew names, is not one of those places that we have a lot of understanding of. So I pray that today you'd blow out the cobwebs and you'd fill us up with your truth and that we would be a people who accomplish things for your kingdom and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So I'm going to read to you Nehemiah 2:9 up to chapter 3 and then I'll be taking sections of chapter 3. Chapter 3 is one of those sections that has all those hard to pronounce tongue twister names and I think we'll get pretty lost if we get pretty deep. But let's start in 2:9. And then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters, and now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem, and I was there three days. And then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do. For there was no animal with me with the one on which I rode, and I went out by night in the valley gate to the dragon spring, to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and I inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so I returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words of the king that had spoken to me. And they said, Let's rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. But we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. That's where we've been the last two weeks. Now we get to where we are today. Chapter 3. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. And they consecrated as far as the Tower of the 100 and as far as the tower of Hanel, and next to them the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur, the son of Emri built, and then the sons of Hassaniah built the fish gate, and they laid its beams and set its doors and its bolts and its bars, and next to them Meramoth, the son of Uriah, and the son of Hakaz repaired, and next to them uh, Meshulam, the son of Barachah, the the son of uh, Meshizabel repaired, and next to them Zadok, the son of Bana. And it's going to go like this for 32 verses. Names you can't pronounce, people you don't know, Things are going to get built. It's going to go gate by gate by gate by gate. There's going to be ten gates. It's going to go counterclockwise around the city, starting at the sheep gate and coming back to the sheep gate. And so let's get to the sheep gate. Let's go to verse 32. And between the upper chamber and the corner and the sheep gate, starts in the sheep gate, ends in the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. And we're going to mine chapter 3 a bit today. But before we do, if you haven't been with us, uh, there's bad preaching available online. You can follow along at home. Uh, you've got a, an outline here, and you're going to see uh, where we've been the past few weeks. In the last few weeks, we saw that kingdom accomplishers are willing to work under official sanction. Nehemiah had the backing of God and the backing of the Persian king. Kingdom accomplishers understand there'll be multiple layers of opposition. There's Sanballat the Horonite, there's Geshem the Arab, and there's Tobiah the toady. And they're always causing problems all through our story. Number three, there's kingdom accomplishers understand the need to work with discretion. When Nehemiah showed up, He went out quietly with just a handful of people. He went out at night so no one would know what he's doing to survey the scene. Number four, kingdom accomplishers start with investigation. Why was he going out at night? He wanted to see firsthand what really needed to be done. And so he did that at night in a clandestine manner, and he got intimately acquainted with the scope of the problem. Number five, Kingdom Accomplishers possess a clear sense of mission. He knew exactly what God had sent him there to do, and that was to build the wall. And he was not going to go until he had finished what God had sent him to do. And number six, Kingdom Accomplishers effectively communicate and inculcate that mission among God's people. He said, look, this is what the hand of my God has put upon me to do. Now let us rise and build. And when the people of God heard that that God was in it, they did what they hadn't done in 95 years. And they began to build a wall. Alright, so all of our previous principles came from the back half of Nehemiah 2, verses 9 through the end of the chapter. But today's principles, principles 7, 8, and 9, well they all are going to come from Nehemiah 3. Those verses that if you're reading through the Bible, you probably got to and you sort of glazed over as you got stuck in those hard to pronounce names. But there's a lot of important truth in Nehemiah 3 chapter 3. And the first truth I want you to see today is that kingdom accomplishers integrate effective organization. Kingdom accomplishers integrate effective organization. Now as soon as I say the word organization, some people think that's kind of a dirty word. It's a bad word. It's a scary word. It's an anti-spiritual word. Uh, When some folks think of organization, they think of institutionalism. They assume that the presence of planning means the squashing of the Spirit, or the absence of creativity, flexibility, and vitality. But biblically speaking, organization is not a bad word. It is a necessary word. When God made this world, He did it in six days of organized symmetry. There were three days of forming, followed by three days of filling. Uh, On day one, God made the light. And three days later, He made light bearers, the sun, the moon, and the stars, didn't He? Uh, On day two, God separated the waters from the sky. And then three days later, He he filled those waters with fish and filled the sky with fowl, didn't He? Uh, On day three, God separated the waters from the land. And three days later, He filled the land with animals and ultimately Adam and Eve. God is a God who does all things decently and in order. And so it's no surprise, in God's Word, when we get to the New Testament, in God's house, what does God expect from us? That we ought to do all things decently and in order. Okay, that means there must be some kind of thoughtful organization. Not simply a gaggle of rabble thrown together whenever, however, and by whomever we feel like. Right? It's pretty hard to do things decently and in order if everything's in chaos and haphazard. You see the dichotomy, right? Right? Okay, so Nehemiah was called of God to a monumental task. He had to rebuild over two and a half miles of wall. Now those walls were eight feet thick, and they were 40 feet high. That's a backbreaking bundle of boulders to shoulder. And yet, he got it done in 52 days. Nehemiah, the kingdom accomplisher, got the people of God on track. And then he got the mission of God on target. And one piece of that process, like it or not, believe it or not, it's right there, is that kingdom accomplishers integrate effective organization. Do you know how to eat an elephant? Get some friends here from Zimbabwe. You know the answer to this. One bite at a time, correct? That's how you eat an elephant. That's literally how they ate elephants in Africa. Nehemiah, the kingdom accomplisher, broke this mammoth job into workable pieces, moving counterclockwise around the city as He did it. He used the ten great gates already in place, the ones that were supposed to be there at least, but were now missing. And He used those ten great gates as markers, and then He assigned logical leaders over various sections. This was all done to the glory of God, and it was all done to the common good, and it all required organization. Verse 1 says that he starts at the sheep gate. And then verse 3 says he moves to the fish gate. And if you walk all the way down the 32 verses, you're going to see sheep gate, fish gate, gate of Yeshenna, the valley gate, the dung gate, the fountain gate, the water gate, the horse gate, the east gate, the muster gate, until counterclockwise you come all the way back around. Verse 32, you're back at the sheep gate. Do you see how Nehemiah took this colossal project and he began to break it into manageable sections? Gate by gate, important task, important point, section by section by section. You see, kingdom accomplishers can see the big picture and then they break it down into bite-sized bits and they begin to parcel it out to those God would have do it. So where do you start with a staggering project that involves the whole community turning ruins into walls? Turning chaos into into order? And the answer is, He started at the sheep gate. Now that's the section nearest to the temple itself. Nearest to the heart of God, if you will, in the city of God. It was the gate from which the sacrificial animals would enter. And friends, the starting place in any work of God is always that which is the most essential. And do you know where that always is? That which is most soteriological. Most connected to the business of salvation. Good leaders know that the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Why don't we say that together? I know how much you enjoy verbal participation. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Do you know this church can do 10,000 good things and miss the best? And many churches do. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And so Nehemiah naturally chose to begin the work of God closest to the temple, closest to the heart of God, closest to the work of God that is soteriological. Now friends, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if you're on the Titanic, it doesn't do much good to paint the ship, does it? You've got to get the ship seaworthy. You've got to get the engines that are seized to begin firing. You've got to put coal back in her soul that's grown cold. You need to point the wheelhouse to wherever you're supposed to be heading or that ship will languish in stagnation. And so Nehemiah started with the area most essential to the primary work of the Lord, the business of salvation. He started where the sacrificial animals would enter the temple. And when he uh, proceeded, he he then moved methodically, section by section by section. And he used each great gate as a natural division of labor. The people could see, we got to get from here to there. This is your section from this big spot to that big spot. They knew they could see, they could understand these divisions. And as he circumnavigated the holy city, The the entire city would be brought up almost simultaneously because different people would be working on different sections to achieve a united goal. That's organization. That's organization. Now that first section was selected not only because it was soteriologically significant, but also because it was probably the most critical to the defense of the holy city. Nehemiah says, then Eliashab, the high priest, rose up with his brothers the priests. This is Nehemiah 3.1. And they built the sheep gate. Now listen on. They consecrated it. They set its doors. And they consecrated it as far as how far? As far as the tower of the hundred. Ah. And as far as the tower of Hanel. Those towers mattered Because without them, the city's defenses would lie in tatter. Now, we don't live in Jerusalem, so we don't see this. But if you were to go to Jerusalem, you're going to see very quickly that the north side of Jerusalem has the poorest natural defenses. It it opens up to the central Benjamin Plateau. And that is where enemy armies would gather before they would attack. And so that section of the wall needed special fortification and towers for soldiers to fight from. Now, the rest of Jerusalem has a formidable, natural, topographic, defensive advantage. But the north is vulnerable. And so a sturdy rebuilding of those two towers was absolutely essential to this task. Now, friends, it's one thing to divide a project into pieces, okay? There's ten sections. That gets it all on paper. Everybody can understand, okay, that's how we get there. But it's another thing to get it accomplished with people, isn't it? You see, anyone with eyes to see and a pen can scope out a project, can sketch out a plan to attack a big deal situation. But the really hard thing in ministry is to transition from organization to delegation. For it is in delegation that the work of God most often falters. It's not that we don't have a plan, although some places don't. But they don't delegate and nobody does it So nothing ever happens. The difference between a kingdom dreamer, he has a plan, and a kingdom accomplisher is that the kingdom accomplisher unites the people of God into service for God. He calls God's people to their individual God-given assignments in the vineyard. Kingdom accomplishers don't do it all. They can't do it all. They empower others to do the work of the ministry. They equip others to use their own gifts to the glory of God as the Spirit so leads. If you want to think of it this way, uh, kingdom accomplishers conspire to inspire so that by God's grace, via God's Spirit, the dry bones are transformed from an idle gaggle to an army of God. Have you seen that in Scripture? Yeah. So according to Scripture, what does the Bible say the pastor is? He's not the CEO of Church Inc., He's not the most charismatic person in the building. He's not the the finest sounding honey talker. No, he is an equipper. That's what you ought to think of your pastor as according to Scripture. Because effective pastors mobilize and motivate. The Bible says we're to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. What's my job? My job is not primarily to do all the work. My job is to do my work. And, And my work is to feed, lead, guard, guide, and protect you to equip you so that you do your work. And if we all do our work, guess what gets done? God's work. And there's no breaches anywhere in the wall. Which brings us, to point eight today. My job here today, my job according to Scripture, it is to motivate you, to to encourage you, to wash you in the Word, to get you in step with the Spirit, to have you use your gifts to the glory of God, so that every single one of us is an on mission Christian. If we're that kind of church, whoa, there's nothing that God can't do through this church. So we come to point eight today. Point eight is this: Kingdom accomplishers integrate effective delegation. They integrate effective delegation. Nehemiah's organization broke that task into ten gates that served as markers in our story. But if you look at the 32 verses of chapter 2, you're going to see that a careful scrutiny, if you really just, just uh, strain this through a very tiny, tiny strainer, you're going to see that he ended up delegating to 42 different work parties if you take the time and you look at who he assigned what and where there are 42 different work parties among those 10 gates and sections that means there's 42 different groups assigned different portions of this mammoth project that means that nehemiah could really delegate couldn't he he had 42 subcommittees he had to ex officio He had 42 leaders that he needed to coordinate their efforts with. He had 42 strong voices he needed to get to sing together to make a choir for Jesus. Do you get the idea? Yeah. Effective kingdom accomplishers know how to delegate. Delegation is essential in kingdom accomplishment. And that is how Nehemiah, by the Spirit of God, got the people of God to do in 52 days what 50,000 Israelites didn't do in 95 years. Now where do we see delegation? We see delegation all over the Bible. Let's just go to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is arguably the finest church planter in the history of the world. He goes to some places, he's there a week. They beat him up, throw him out, and there's a church. And he has to write letters and send people back and forth to strengthen that church, but there's a church. Longest he stays anywhere is, is Ephesus, and it's not that tremendously long, but there's a church. And so Paul delegated... Unfinished tasks. He he delegated the unfinished task uh, to Titus on Crete to appoint elders so there would be a strong biblical church. Uh, Paul delegated uh, when there were false teachers that were were trying to destroy the Gospel and tear apart the Ephesian congregation, he delegated tender Timothy to go and contend with those false teachers. Uh, You'll see in Scripture a couple things. Number one, delegation is absolutely necessary. And number two, delegation is usually messy. Delegation is usually messy. Not every delegated person is going to excel the first time through. Did you know that? Hmm. You and I often learn best, often learn most, often learn in a way we never forget by messing it up, by failure. We learn some lessons we can only learn by, by failing. Let me tell you what. If nobody gives us opportunities to lead and to use our gifts to give us that opportunity to sometimes fail. No leaders will ever be raised up in this church. Many times what churches want is we want perfection. And so in our selection, we only choose the dependable. Therefore, we never disciple the available, and we never end up testing and training and equipping the untested but capable. Have you ever heard this statistic? that in most churches, 20% of the people do 80% of the work, and 80% of the work gets done only by 20% of the people. And churches know that statistic. They go, oh, that's a terrible statistic. We don't. But let me tell you, if you are not intentionally inviting others to use their gifts to the glory of God, understanding that a new worker is going to learn by failure, just like we did, we will never have new leaders. Because that's how it works. Hey, did you know that the veteran is always steady? But do you know that rookies only become veterans when they get a chance to play and strike out once in a while? Nehemiah involves everyone. If, if you could fog a mirror and he was near, he had a plan for you to stand on that wall. He had a plan for you to do something for the glory of God. And you read this text in these 32 verses, every vocation, location, and social station, he had a plan to use them to the glory of God in building that wall. Nehemiah, the first person he got involved is the high priest and that's an important principle in leadership getting existing key leaders as a fixture in fixing a fissure is a crucial catalyst to getting work out of paralysis if you can get existing leaders to buy in and come on they'll bring their own followers along won't they nehemiah is no dummy and the spirit of god did this not ultimately nehemiah the spirit of god ultimately did this amen And the Spirit of God understood that you need to do certain principles or you probably won't get very far in getting that wall built up. And so Nehemiah got the high priest involved. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1, our first verse of our focus today. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests and they built the sheep gate and they consecrated it and they set its doors and they consecrated it as far as the tower of a hundred and as far as the tower of Hanel. Nehemiah didn't stop with just the high priest. He got more priests. The Bible says he got the priests involved, not just the high priest. Verse 1 says, Eliashib the high priest rose up with who? His brothers, the priests. And they built the sheep gate. Now skip down to verse 22. Skip down to verse 22. And it says, After him, who repaired what? The priests again. Other priests. Different section. Alright, verse 28. Look at that. Above the horse gate... The priests repaired. He's drawing in more priests. Nehemiah got the priests involved. He got the high priests involved. He got the Levites involved. Look at verse 17. After him the... Boy, this is hard. The Levites. There we go. There's a gap. After him the Levites repaired. But this was not just the work of the priestly cast. No, Nehemiah took the existing guilds. He didn't just say, get me the professional clergy. Let's go get a Jason. Let's go get, let's go get people that are ordained. No, no, no. He went to the tradesmen. Whatever you have a gift to do, you can do it to the Lord. And so look at verse 8. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Hariah, goldsmiths. Those aren't priests. Those are merchants. Those are traders. Those are people that can make things. They, 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 they were just guys who work with their hands. The goldsmiths repaired. And next to him, Haniah, one of the perfumers. Now, I don't know how it worked in the ancient world, but I'm guessing perfumers were not known for manual labor. Like, I don't know exactly, I don't have a window in there, but if I had to make a guess, the goldsmiths lift stuff, they burn stuff, they did, but you know, he's a perfumer, right? You know? Like, there he is, building the wall, lifting boulders, shouldering with the others, sweating in the sun. Later, he's going to have a weapon in one hand and he's going to have a trial in another, defending the city with his very life if he has to. Hmm. Look at verse 32. Between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants. Again, it's the goldsmiths. This time it's the goldsmiths and the local merchants, the traders, the hawkers, the sellers. Nehemiah took whoever was available and encouraged them to use whatever they had to the glory of God. And Nehemiah also was shrewd. He took existing affinity groups. Do you know there are people who already know people and like people? And if you get those people to work together, they get along. Did you know that? Okay, so there were people who were united in their vocation. And he said, you already know how to work together. You do it every day. You do it Monday through Friday. You do it at the workplace. You do it at the perfuming area. You do it at the, at the market stall. So work for the Lord together. There's a natural synergy when you group people by affinity. If you take the union laborers and they use their gifts, and the CPAs and they use their gifts, uh, you, you, you get a lot done for the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 14, reminds us. The body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as He chose. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor can the head say to the feet, I have no need of you. God is dispersing in this body different passions, different vocations, different all kinds of differences so that we can be enriched when we work together. Not so that we can stratify and not work together. The people of God came together because the leader of God's people brought them together not just by vocation, but also by location. Look at this. Look at verse 10. Next to them, Jedediah the son of Harum. Momf, uh, that's another one that they don't name the, the, the hipster kids, right? That one's not going to come up. Uh, I can not even say it. Next to him, Jedediah, the son of someone hard to pronounce, repaired opposite what? His own house. Nehemiah had people repair if they lived next to the wall. Why don't you repair the section of the wall next to your house? He does it a lot. Skip down to verse 23. And then Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. And after them, Azariah, the son of uh, Mosaiah, the son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. We see the same thing in verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired each one opposite his own house. And after them, Zadok, the son of Emir, repaired opposite his own house. Repeatedly, Nehemiah had the people repair the section of the wall that was nearest to their own house. Do you know why? Because if the city was ever attacked, the people who lived right next to a section of the wall would have the most skin in the game that that part of the wall would not fall. Amen? Like, he understood human nature. Nehemiah wisely took people's personal passion. I have a passion to make sure that part of the wall is done. So you know what he didn't say? Yeah, go work over there. He said, oh, you're passionate about this part of the kingdom of God? Let's move you into your area of passion. And let's take that passion and fan it into flame for the glory of God. One of our saints here in this church, I don't know if you know Norma Millicent, but she's had a lot of, of loss in her life. Unfortunately, she's buried a lot of people close to her. And this put a burden on her heart to share Christ to the grieving community. And so she, she came to the leadership of this church, and the leadership empowered her to start grief share. And now we have several of you coming alongside Norma every other Wednesday, and God is sending people from the community who are hurting, most of whom don't know Jesus, and they're getting multiple weeks of how do I deal with my grief and finding hope through Jesus Christ. Because Norma had a passion, and she wanted to take her pain with the comfort in which she received comfort, she would then comfort others. If that sounds vaguely biblical, it's because it is. <laughs> Some of you have a passion. You have a passion for children. Great, serve with our children. Well, I like children, but I like them only under two. When they can talk back, you can have them back. Fine, work in the nursery. Some of you love teenagers. Some of you are so strange you love middle schoolers. It's okay. I don't know what you're passionate about. Well, I'm not. To give me a kid, it might die. But give me a hammer, and I can make something straight. Good. We got broken stuff here. The point is. It doesn't matter if you're gifting and your passion is computers, if your gifting and passion is missions, if you're gifting and passion is... Ch- There's going to be a way, if we pray, for God to put you on the wall to do what we could never do if you weren't here. Because He's put you here, and He has a plan for you here. Some of you say, well, you know, I don't, I don't have this specific skill. I'm not a computer person. I'm not a, a children person. I'm not a builder person. I know some of you just have a, a love to love people. You just love people. And you want to serve people. You make them dinner, or you, you, you bring something by, or you just spend time with them. Do you know what they call that? They call that a deacon and deaconess. It's one of the most important offices in Scripture. Don't, don't let Satan tell you, well, I don't have a special skill. If you can sit with someone and show the love of Christ... Talk to us. Maybe you should be helping in that capacity some way here at Calvary. God is building a team. Don't leave your talents untapped. Or the work of God will languish while we wait for someone else to do what God has already sovereignly placed us here to do. Now, the delegation by location wasn't just, oh, you live next to the wall, you should repair it. There were people who didn't live anywhere near the wall. They didn't live in the holy city. They lived way away, but they were part of the people of God. And every part of the people of God need to be involved in the work of God so God gets the glory. So, so Nehemiah goes to people that live far away. He goes to the men of Jericho in our passage, the men of Tekoa, the men of Mitzpah, the men of Gibeon, and he encourages them to join in and they all take a section of the wall together by location. That's interesting, isn't it? Because those people knew each other. They'd been back for 95 years. That means there were a couple, three generations that had grown up in Tekoa and Mitzvah, and they went to, you know, their kids went to school together and they played on the playground together. And, and, and Nehemiah said, you know what? You guys already know each other. You already grew up together. Come and work together for Jesus. Did you know there's nothing unholy about working alongside your buddy for Jesus? Sometimes the best way to get along is to work with those to whom you already get along. <laughs> it's nothing unchristian about saying, you know what, we really get along, how do we work together to build the kingdom of God? There may even be situations where you love Jesus and they love Jesus and you guys are just like oil and water. (laughs) Maybe you should work on that section of the wall and they work on that section of the wall. Maybe you should non-acrimoniously move to different sections. But don't give up working. Some saints go, well, you know, this guy drives me crazy so I'm not going to work on the wall. No, just work on a different section of the wall. Now, this unity and diversity not only uh, emphasized a vocation and location, it's going to cut across social station. If you look at uh, uh, several rulers in our story get involved. Look at verse 12. Next to him, uh, Shalom, the son of uh, Halashish, ruler of the Hass district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughter. So, so here's a man who had authority. And he didn't say, well, I have authority, I have nobility, I have, I have a fine suit, I'm not going to build the wall. No, he was there even though he was a man of authority. We see the same thing in verse 14. Uh, Malchijah, the son of, uh, of Rahab, ruler of the district of Beth-Hacharim, repaired the dung gate. Now think about that for a second. Here's a guy who's in charge of stuff, and they say, okay, somebody's got to repair the <clears throat> dung gate. And do you know who did it? A guy who was above doing that. Right there, who repaired the dung gate? The ruler of a district repaired the least noble sounding gate. And in verse 15, Shalom, the son of Colhezim, ruler of the district of Mizpah, well, he repaired the fountain gate. And in verse 16, and after him Nehemiah, the son of Azbok, the ruler of the half district of Bethzer, he repaired a section. Again and again and again. Verse 17, 18, and 19. Next to him was uh, uh, Hashabiah, ruler of the Hash district of Kaleah. And they repaired for his district. And right alongside those rulers, it wasn't just the big wheels and the big deals, it was the simple citizens. Look at verse 13. Hanuan and the inhabitants of Sanoa. Just the regular folk. They were there repairing the valley gate. Most of the laborers on this project, friends, were not movers and shakers. They were the, the simple people of God's people. Look at verse 2. The men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zekur, the son of Emry built. And the sons of Hanasseh built the fish gate. Verse 4, and Merimoth, the son of Uriah, and the son of Hachaz, repaired. And on and on and on and on. These names, not important, not impressive, not people we know. Just regular people who used their gifts and talents to the glory of God. Friends, the Bible is not fiction. And there can be a beautiful unity when we want to work together. But you know what? The Bible tells us the truth. And there will be some saints who when the call of God goes forth, when the, when the, when the ram's horn is sounded for the people of God to muster and cluster and, and work, there will be one guy who doesn't show up. There will be one group who doesn't show up. There will be somebody who doesn't show up. And in this wonderful story of unity and the amazing power of the Holy Spirit, I want you to look at verse 5. Because there's always a verse 5 in every assembly of the people of God. Verse 5 is sad, but verse 5 is true, and you need to see it. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Now, they're nobles of the Lord's people. They're given a portion of God's people to to be over, to to be ministering to, but they wouldn't stoop to serve the Lord. Tekoa was to Jerusalem's near south. It was highly likely that the leading men of Tekoa didn't want to play along because they resented Nehemiah's leadership. And how sad it is when leaders would rather criticize God's man accomplishing something from the sidelines than roll up their sleeves and do something themselves. One biblical commentator summarized or surmised that the reason for the treason is that these nobles probably felt threatened by Nehemiah's bold, strong leadership because it made their own nobility that seemed so important for so long look dim next to his shining example. How tragic it is that we can be so petty, friends. Jesus was not afraid to see a leader developed around him. Do you know what Jesus said to His disciples? You shall do even greater things than these. You know what He didn't say? Get behind me and be less than me. Now, He was God. But He's okay with those that He's training becoming greater than He in, in a respect in ministry. Obviously, the Son of God is unique, but nonetheless, Jesus was willing to see them do exceedingly abundantly more than you can ask or imagine. The greatest compliment a discipler can ever have is for His disciples to eclipse Him. Amen? If you pour into someone and they do more than you could ever do, praise God. Praise God. I want you to ask a man named Barnabas in the New Testament. Barnabas, uh, which isn't his real name, uh, but it means son of encouragement. So he would see someone and he would see potential. And there was a guy who used to murder Christians. What was his name? Saul of Tarsus. And he got amazingly converted and all the other disciples said, woo, praise God, we have a murderer. Let's have a revival. No, they said, whoa, this dude killed my brother-in-law. I don't trust him. I don't like him. I don't want him here. And only one guy was willing to disciple Paul. Who was it? it? was Barnabas. And very shortly, Paul eclipsed Barnabas in service. Now, we don't think a lot about Barnabas, but Paul writes 13 of your New Testament books. And, and, and yet, Barnabas seems to only be happy with that situation. So we have in verse 5, we have some people who won't serve Jesus. They won't stoop to do the work of the Lord. It's beneath them someone else should do it. You know what Satan likes to do? He likes to take people who are otherwise happy serving Jesus and show them the nobles of Tekoa among them. Until we get frustrated. Well, why do I have to do this if they won't do this? Let me see if you've ever heard this. Well, Cindy Lou and Mary too, they are not serving in the nursery again. Why should it fall on me? I've had four turns this cycle. Now you were perfectly happy to serve Jesus until you realized that Cindy Lou and Mary too were not there. How about this? Jim Bob and Big Rob aren't here at the work day. We don't have a Jim Bob or a Big Rob, so don't look for them. It's important that you see that these are fictional characters. Okay, so Jim Bob and Big Rob are not here at the work day. So why should I mulch till lunch when they won't show up at all? See how Satan will use the disobedience of someone else to squash the joy in service among you. Don't ever let that happen. You serve Jesus. Choose this day whom you will serve. The other thing is up to them. You serve Him. Look at verse 5, and then I want you to set verse 5 against verse 27, because the Bible tells the truth. The truth is the leaders of of Tekoa were naughty, but the people of Tekoa were not. Look at verse 5, and then look at verse 27. Verse 5 says, Next to them the Tekoites repaired. So the people of Tekoa, they already did their section in verse 5. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Now I want you to look at verse 27. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting towers as far as the wall of Ophel. The men of Tekoa, the normal citizens, they didn't just do one section, but they said, give us more work. Uh, Their nobles were ignoble, But the people were eager to serve the Lord. And that brings us to another reality when it comes to delegation. Like it or not, some can be asked more of some than others. There are people that will do more for Jesus than other people. That's just a rule in leadership. that You make this call, you invite everyone to serve Jesus with all their heart and all their mind and all their soul and all their strength. And some people are going to do that to a point where you almost have to pull them back and tell them there's got to be Sabbath rest. And there's others that you're going to wonder when are they ever going to muster? And there's nothing new under the sun. It was true in Nehemiah's day. It's true today. It'll be true until Jesus returns one day. Look at verse 13. Hanuan and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it. They set its doors, its bolts, its bars. And then they did what? They repaired a thousand cubits of the wall. So so you had the the simple citizens of Tekoa. The ignoble nobles wouldn't do their job. And the simple citizens of Tekoa in verse 5 and verse 27, they do two sections. But there's this other group in verse 13. The inhabitants of Zenoa. They don't live in the city. They don't have skin in the game. They just want to bring glory to Jesus. And it says they repaired a thousand cubits. Now, do you remember how long a cubit is? Probably not. Okay, so a, a thousand cubits is about 1,500 feet. Now remember, this wall is 8 feet thick. This wall is 40 feet high. And they're going to do 1,500 feet of wall. That's a massive undertaking. And yet the inhabitants of Zenoa, who didn't even live in the city, wanted to bring glory to God, that's the largest section mentioned in all of Scripture. Those people built it. You know what? Some saints will carry more water for Jesus than other saints. That's just how it is. Jesus said in the parable of the soils that all true disciples will bear fruit, but then He says it's going to be uneven fruit. Some will bear 30, some will bear 60, some will bear 100 times what has been sown. The citizens of Tekoa were willing to do a double portion, and they took two sections. The inhabitants of Zenoa were willing to do 1,500 feet of the project, the largest portion of the whole wall the Bible mentions. You know what You know I should pray? You and I should pray like this. Lord, make me the kind of saint that has a hundredfold return on the good seed You've planted. If some of us are 30 and some of us are 60 and some of us are 100, maybe we should be praying that God would put on our hearts to be a hundredfold Christians. Uh, That we would be the kind that put our hand to the plow and we don't look back to distract. Saints who don't seek to do the minimum so that we don't feel guilty to see what we can get away with, but rather that we would always be zealous for the work of the Lord. You know what's that? That's what the New Testament tells us that we should always be zealous for the work of the Lord. But I have a feeling you have a world of flesh and the devil that try and make you feel less than zealous, that gets you to instead of serve with joy, you serve with grumbling. You, you, it's easy to keep score. Well, I'm here, but where are they? Why isn't so? You, you, the Satan wants to not only get you not doing whatever the wall is, but he wants you to get you to do it where it's not worship. So that even if you're there, you're there out of guilt. You're there because your peers know whether or not you're going to be there. You're not doing it with Jesus on your heart and a song on your lips. One is worship. One is construction. Now you can serve on any committee in any ministry as worship. Or you can serve on any ministry in any committee as busy work for Jesus. Only you get to decide what that is because that's in your heart. What are you doing with your heart? Not just your hands. Your heart. Now all of this brings us to our final point today. Point nine on our outlines. Kingdom accomplishers understand that accomplishment takes not just inspiration and organization and even delegation, but it's going to take mutual perspiration. Mutual perspiration. Kingdom accomplishers understand that accomplishment takes not just inspiration and organization and delegation, but friends, it's going to cost us something. It's going to take mutual perspiration. Nehemiah was willing in his own life. He made the arduous task from Susa, the citadel of Persia. He made a multi-month overland journey. He left the comforts and security of the palace. He left a great gig where he was number two as the cupbearer to go in the middle of nowhere where things were very unhospitable, where the enemies were waiting the day he landed. Nehemiah was willing to tackle all the roadblocks that those enemies threw at him. There's Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite and Geshin the Arab and they're just lopping volley after volley after volley all through our story. Even after the wall is built, you're going to see that Tobiah the toady is still causing intimidation. Nehemiah is willing to work in our story when everybody else was sleeping, wasn't he? Uh, Nehemiah uh, was willing to meet with all those guilds and all those gatherings and all those local laborers, all 42 of those work parties, and get them to work together and sing as a choir instead of 42 independent singers doing their own thing. The citizens of Jericho and Gibeah and Mitzvah and Tekoa and Zenoah, Nehemiah was willing to do whatever needed doing, so the work of God got done. Kingdom accomplishment is a lot like exercise. You're going to have to sweat to see something done for Jesus. Somebody wrote in a commentary, and I just couldn't resist putting it here, so sorry. It says, sadly, the only exercise some people get is running their mouths, jumping to conclusions, and pressing their luck. What kind of saint are we going to be? Are we going to be worn out for Jesus with sweat on our brow because we have done a hard day's work as the Lord has told us? Are we going to be the kind of saint that that commentator wrote running our mouth, jumping to conclusions, and pressing our luck. One of them is productive. One of them is destructive. Kingdom accomplishers combine inspiration, organization, delegation with actual personal perspiration. If Calvary is going to be a kingdom-impacting congregation, we must be a congregation of perspiration. Amen? Very low amen. We must be willing to be like our God. Uh, There's a translation of the New Testament and Old Testament is very fresh. It's called the Message. And it sometimes says things in a way that's a little bit different than how we're used to it if we always read it in our preferred translation. In the Message, Isaiah 52.10 says this, God has rolled up His sleeves All the nations see His holy muscled arm. You've got to think that one through. It's not really here. Uh, Everyone from one end of the earth to the other sees Him at work doing His salvation work. Are we willing to roll up our sleeves and put our muscles to work for Jesus? The New Testament says the same thing. Again in the message. The message translates 1 Peter 1.13 quite memorably. So roll up your sleeves. Put your mind in gear. Don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil, doing just what you feel like doing. You didn't know any better then, but you do now. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life. A life energetic and blazing with holiness. Few Christians actively oppose the building of the kingdom of God, right? Nobody says, Well, I'm against the kingdom of God getting built. We don't actively oppose God's agenda. But few Christians actively galvanize their intentions and mobilize their actions so that God's agenda is actually advanced in their day. And so, to that end, I'd like us to pray. I'd like for you to turn to your neighbor, and in a few moments, uh, together, you've got nine principles. They're biblical. We see them throughout the Bible, but we see them primarily today in Nehemiah. I'd like for you to turn to your neighbor and pray to your Savior that God would inculcate and infuse this body with those nine principles that we would get about the work of kingdom business and not just be merely passive spectators. And in a few moments, I will close this in prayer. Pray with your neighbor, please. Lord Jesus, You've heard each of these prayers because You are an all-wise God. You can hear each of these simultaneously and understand them intimately. You can do things that we cannot do. From here, it just sounds like a murmur over the congregation. But in Your ears, You heard every voice. You heard the person playing along in the silence of their heart, praying with them with their own burdens in this way. Lord Jesus, you are an amazing God. You're a God who hears and answers prayer. I thank you that you're alive and well in this congregation. And in these few years that I've been with these folks, I've seen so many so frequently give so much of themselves tirelessly and, and even when they are beyond fatigue and yet they continue to serve you with joy. They they reach out to people, they, they share the gospel, they meet. And love on one another Lord I'm grateful that that this just reminds us of the road map that we're not stuck in a ditch that our ship isn't in a, a, a dead in the water, taking on water, aimless listless, blown about by every wind but but that this this church has tried very intentionally to chart a course to that which is the most soteriological that which is the most doxological that which brings you the most praise Lord I pray that you would you would double down in our hearts Lord that we would be a congregation of on-mission Christians that that our life would be uh, nothing that we would we would uh, consider the cross Lord and, and we would take up our cross and follow you that we would lift Jesus high that many might come to him we pray Lord that you would help us to integrate these nine things Lord would you would you help us, to not needlessly usurp, but to work under official sanction whenever possible, Lord. Help us to understand there's going to be multiple layers of opposition. That every work of God was always met by all of the hounds of hell, and yet You were able to overcome Goliath and the Red Sea and the Pharaoh seeing red. Lord, we're we're grateful that, that You tell us that we need to work with discretion. That there are things that are true that perhaps we need to keep only to some who need to know. And not everyone needs to know everything about every situation. Lord, we pray that You would help us to to look at things with our eyes wide open with investigation. That we wouldn't just be uh, ready-fire-aim Christians who who take aim only after their shot has been launched, but that we would be the kind of people who think soberly and, and then who move according to the reality of the situation as You give us eyes to see. We pray, Lord, that we'd be a church that isn't listless and aimless, but we would have a clear sense of mission. That we would make disciples of all nations. That we would make disciples here in, in our Jerusalem and, and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth that we would equip equippers. We pray, Lord Jesus, that, that You would help us as a church to, to effectively communicate and inculcate the Word of God and the mission that You're giving this church to the people that we would, we would know and we would be rowing together and not each our separate ways. We pray, Lord, that we would integrate effective organization, that we wouldn't make organization be our God, that we wouldn't be a church that's so bureaucratic that that we don't move in, in line with Your Spirit. But Lord, help us not to be chaotic, haphazard, reactive, flippant, and aimless. Help us, Lord, to be organized. Help us, Lord, to delegate, because You get Your work done not through a piece of paper, but through people people that You died for, people that You've put Your image in, people that You've put Your Spirit in. And so we pray, Lord, that we would see more and more take up an oar and help us row for Jesus. We pray, Lord Jesus, that that we would be a church that puts forth perspiration, that we would have skin in the game, that we would understand that that following Jesus isn't adding uh, uh, insurance to our eternity, but it's submitting to a God entirely. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.